0: Man, when I when I read through this text, um, I I think I think about the I think about City Light and I think about, you know, the first three years or so of church planting City Light was launched um, April, uh, April the 2nd of 2017. But we started in our house um, with with a group of believers who love Jesus and desire to make his name known. and, and, And so that that happened in 2016. So three years we've been on this journey. And, and there's a lot of just kind of highs and lows with this journey. There are moments where where I'm uh, super-duper excited about everything that God is doing, and then there are moments where I'm like, Brian, what in the heck are you doing right now? You know, it's just like, what is going on, and why are you even doing this? You know, it's just like... Challenges that are hitting you square in the face, and 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 really testing your 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 trust in God, and testing your resolve, and and testing and testing your heart for God's mission, right? Because there are just times where you where you just want to kind of wrap this thing up and say, God, um, I'll just go in a corner and be quiet, right? I mean, there's there's somebody else can do this stuff, and I'll just go into a corner and be quiet. And so when I read chapter 16, what I'm really, really, what I was most encouraged by is the fact that that's not abnormal, right? That, that, that we do face suffering and, and, and challenges that, that, that make you want to kind of just pack up. That, that challenges are normal in the life of the church. The challenges are not abnormal. To those that are seeking to make Jesus Christ known in the world. Amen. And so I want, I want to just, I just, I want to linger there for a second and talk a little bit about some of the lessons that we see in, in church planting in Acts chapter 16. One of the lessons that we see in church planting in Acts chapter 16 is that God builds his church by empowering us to push through challenges. He builds his church by empowering his church to push through challenges, but then also God builds his church in other ways. God builds his church by 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 giving his church people from every walk of life and then of course, the last lesson that I want to highlight is the fact that God builds his church simply with the gospel so before we get to the church planning work in chapter sixteen the the actual church planning work that takes place in in philippi um, i want to I want to just I want to stop at the, at, and go to chapter 15 because I think it helps for us to pay attention to a few, a few of the things that are happening before they actually get about the business of planning a church in Philippi. We see a challenge, um, in Acts chapter 15. And like I said, the first lesson for us is the lesson that God builds his church by empowering us to push through challenges. And the first challenge we see is in chapter 15 and it's a challenge, it's a challenge A conflict. Verse 36, if you will look there with me, it says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, and strengthened, Cilicia rather, strengthening the churches. Now, a few weeks ago, We actually discussed this sharp disagreement if you were with us, but if you weren't with us, the conflict was in Acts chapter 13, or the conflict actually starts in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and his companions, the Bible says, they set sail for Panthos. Or Paphis, And they come to, or they came to Persia and Pamphylia, and John left them. John Mark, the same John Mark that we just read about in Acts chapter 15. He left them in Acts chapter 13. Now, like we discussed a few weeks ago, we don't know necessarily why John Mark decided to leave. But for whatever reason he decided to leave, it did not appear to be a valid reason to Paul. And it all comes to a head at the end of chapter 15, with Paul and Barnabas having this sharp disagreement. Sharp meaning extremely vocal, extremely argumentative. This is not just a polite discussion that they're having. This is a draw a line in the sand and say, no, it ain't happening. Paul draws a line and he says that he doesn't think it's appropriate for Mark to go. Because he declined to go the first time. And now they're coming back through the cities and he doesn't think it's a good idea for someone who quit on them to be a part of that journey. But Barnabas draws a line and says that his cousin Mark, because it's his cousin, John Mark, should be welcomed back on the team. And whatever reason that he chose not to come with them the first time shouldn't be held against him this time. Now, this sharp disagreement leads to separation in mission. Barnabas takes his cousin Mark, and and they head back to visit the churches through Cyprus. But Paul takes Silas, and they move back through Syria and Cilicia. What I hope you see in this moment is that even with the greatest missionaries in the history of Christianity, conflict is possible. There is no such thing as a perfect mission because there is no such thing as a perfect missionary. There is no such thing as a perfect mission because there is no such thing as a perfect missionary. The God of missions is perfect, but those that he sends on missions is not. No mission is perfect. Do you understand that? No church plant is perfect. No established church is perfect because they are all made up with imperfect people. City Light will never, ever be a perfect church. Not as long as you're here. Or yeah. well, as long as I'm here. Well, as long as one of the people that are sitting next to you are here. Ridge yourself of the expectation that God is using perfect churches. He's not because he hasn't planted any yet. Amen. However, here's a truth that we need to have confidence in, and it's this. God is using imperfect churches in accordance to his perfect plan. God uses this challenge of conflict between Paul and Barnabas to advance his mission in two different directions. And we even learn later that he brings reconciliation to Paul and Barnabas and even Paul and John Mark. Because later on, Paul speaks favorably of Barnabas and he speaks favorably of Mark. Conflict is not beyond God's reach. He can use our imperfection in his perfect purposes. And this is why instead of allowing a moment of frustration with one another to totally derail us, we should be asking in those moments, Lord, what can you do with this? What can you do with this moment of frustration that we are experiencing? How can you receive glory in this? Where can reconciliation happen? And how can the advancement of your mission continue? However, that's not the only challenge that these missionaries face on the road to the church plan in Philippi. Picking up in verse 1 of chapter 16, we find a challenge of culture. Look at verse 1. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of, Jew, uh, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul, as he starts this, this new journey, connects with a young gifted believer by the name of Timothy. and He takes him under his wing, and he mentors Timothy, for the later call of being a shepherd to the people of God. His faithfulness, according to verse 2, Timothy's faithfulness is already well-known and well-established. People all the way in other cities speak highly of him. But there seems to be one hurdle that Paul is concerned about, and that's Timothy is uncircumcised. Timothy's father is Greek, but Timothy's mother is Jewish, which meant that he would have been considered in Jewish custom to be Jewish and thus required and subject to the cultural norms and the cultural standards. In other words, they would have required circumcision, and they would have been offended if he wasn't, which he wasn't. All Jewish men were circumcised on the eighth day in accordance to the law. But it seems that Timothy's father, as a Greek man, didn't observe it and didn't require Timothy to observe it. Paul, however, understood the significance. He understood that there could be possibly roadblocks ahead. If he brought Timothy along in sharing the gospel with Jewish believers or Jewish people, they would be completely off-put by the fact that Timothy was not circumcised and would refuse to even give them a hearing. So Paul circumcises him. commitment. Paul's philosophy in addressing these cultural changes, right, these, or these cultural challenges is simple. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. With these words, Paul is teaching the church a lesson in how to overcome culture, the challenge of culture. And that's this. Sacrifice your comforts for others' salvation. Sacrifice your comforts for others' salvation. Timothy certainly didn't have to get circumcised, but to pave the way for the gospel to go forward without obstruction, Timothy endured the discomfort of circumcision. It doesn't mean we indulge in sin or engage in sin in order to win others, but it does mean we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable in order to gain better opportunities for the gospel to be received. Let me ask you a question. In what ways can you sacrifice individual preferences to see the gospel advance? In what ways can you, sacrifice, individual preferences in order to see the gospel advance. Maybe you might have to sacrifice wearing your red elephant t-shirt or your blue donkey's t-shirt so that you can have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who doesn't vote like you. Maybe you might have to skip a few of of the all-you-can-eat rib nights if you're trying to open a door to a Muslim neighbor or a Hebrew Israelite neighbor. See, we cannot reach a world that we aren't willing to be inconvenienced by. We cannot reach a world that we aren't willing to be inconvenienced by. Paul and Timothy both were committed to being inconvenienced to see the world won to Jesus. But we we see the flip side of this challenge in verse 4. When you read it, it says this. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. What news was Paul and Timothy delivering? The news from chapter 15. And what was the news in chapter 15? It was this, primarily, that those who were coming to Christ were not required to be circumcised. Isn't that interesting? They're delivering news that basically says you don't have to be circumcised, but Timothy gets circumcised before they go and deliver the news. And notice what this message of freedom brings to the church, fruitfulness. Verse 5 tells us that that the church is strengthened, so there's an increase in strength, and they increased in numbers daily, so there is an increase in people. But did you catch that? While Paul and Timothy were visiting all of the Christians in these cities, spreading the word that the gospel did not require circumcision but only required faith in Jesus Christ, Timothy was being circumcised to open opportunities for the gospel to be shared. So what's happening here? The message of cultural freedom was for the saints, but the act of cultural sacrifice was for the unbelievers. You understand that? See, we are not saved by such actions, but sometimes we take such actions if it opens the door to being saved. Not watching Harry Potter doesn't save me. But if I I feel like I'm amongst people that might be offended by me watching Harry Potter, I won't turn it on. Do you understand that? Because the goal is their salvation, not me exercising my freedoms. In Galatians, we see this on display with Paul making the decision not to circumcise Titus. There was no stumbling block for the Jews there in this position. Titus was a Greek. He was a Greek man who some in the church were saying needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul refused that. He said, no, 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 no. Salvation is not about circumcision. Do you understand the difference? However, in the case of Timothy... He was a Jewish man who was offending Jewish culture, limiting the opportunities that they had for salvation to be reached or to be be, uh, stretched out there. And so, therefore, that's why he makes the sacrifice of comfort. See, there are times where it's most appropriate for you to fight for freedom in Christ, but then there are times where it's most appropriate for you to sacrifice your freedoms for the sake of others. And in order to properly discern your decisions, we must we must, all of us must remain prayerful, sensitive to how the Spirit leads us, sensitive to the audience in which we've been, uh, which we've been called to reach. We must search the scriptures for a direction on which way to go, and we must seek wisdom from godly men and women who, who have been, a, who, who've gone before us, and who have more experience than us. Of course, we must walk humbly and we must walk lovingly. Those are the guides. Humility and love is what guides us to make the right decisions. But then there's a challenge of denial when you look at chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. It says this, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Paul appears to have wanted to make an attempt to take the gospel into Asia and Bithynia, but for whatever reason is hindered in doing so. Now, we don't have much information on why the Spirit is denying them the opportunity to share the gospel. We just know he can't go. And we know, we do know that they are not being denied because they are doing something sinful. They're, they're actually trying to take the gospel to these places, and yet they are being denied. And they're being denied by God, according to the scriptures. Now, I'm sure there's a reason to be distraught about being forbidden to go, but notice what happens. They keep going. Maybe I can't go to Phrygia and Galatia and share the gospel in Asia, or maybe I can't go through Phrygia and Galatia and share the gospel in Asia, but I'll keep going till I can find some place that the Lord will permit me to share the gospel. You understand that? See, Paul understands probably better than most that God stopping a work is not intended to stop us from working. God stopping a work is not intended to stop us from working. His denials Oftentimes are redirections to do kingdom work differently or to, or to do it in another place or, 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 or maybe he's opening up opportunities that we have yet to see. But you never have to ask God if he desires for you to aid in the sharing of the gospel and the sharing of Jesus' love with the world. If he stops you in one opportunity, it is only because another opportunity is being made available so you must pursue it. This is what we see with Paul in these next verses. He continues on. As a matter of fact, a vision is given to him. And in verse 9 and 10, the vision is made plain. It says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia. This is ancient Europe and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to him, to them. Maybe God had denied Asia for now, but God had called them further out into Europe, and so we must go. He closes one door but opens another. In fact, that's the message over the last 15 verses that we just read. God is not surprised by any of these challenges. They are all, they all have the capacity to be used by him, to get us to the place that he wants us to be. Whether it's the challenge of conflict, whether it's the challenge of culture, whether it's the challenge of denial, they all can be used by God. And so we continue to go. Some of you in this room may feel like you simply, Can't win for losing. Obstacle after obstacle after obstacle keeps jumping in the way, whether in relationships, in ministry opportunities, or in the difficulties on your job and your finances. But here's the truth. Christ can be glorified in you no matter what position you find yourself in life. Christ wants to receive glory out of your life no matter where you are in life. Christ wants to receive glory out of your life no matter where you are in life. And that leads us to the next 30 verses that we're gonna buzz through. Because what you see is that as a result of all of these challenges, they end up in a place that they really didn't intend initially to be. They're in Philippi. Philippi is a booming seaport community in Europe, ancient Europe, and considered one of the little roms of the ancient empire. Its soil is rich and fertile, and its mountains were, were, were just littered with all kinds of good minerals, and, and gold mines were even close by in close proximity. This place was a, was a hotbed for people to live, just like Vicksburg. Somebody caught that not like Vicksburg, Paul's missionary team lands with the immediate desire to see people touch with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thanks to the Lord's working, that's exactly what happens. People are touched with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the second lesson, this idea that God builds his church with people from every walk of life. Starting in verse 13, it says this, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, a few words about Lydia. She's a woman of means. Lydia's hometown was known as a wealthy but small city and she was a seller of purple fabrics, which tells us that this, this fabric was a material typically designated for royalty and often very, very pricey. So she, she, she seems to be a woman of means. And then she also has a home that the, that the early church actually begins to meet there once she gets saved. So she has a home big enough for hosting. She's selling purple fabrics. We see this woman as a woman of means. But also, she appears to be a God-fearing woman, according to this text, meaning that she carries great reverence for the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, she carries such reverence that she is only outside of the city at a prayer meeting with other women. She's wealthy. She's career-driven, career-oriented. She's a businesswoman. She is a God-fearer. The Bible says about this woman in verse 14 that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Notice how God moves in ways that we least expect him to do. They've already had all these challenges that that have pushed them into Europe, into Macedonia, into this city called Philippi. And Paul is given this vision before he goes, and it's a man that's saying, come and help us. And then he gets there, and the first person that gets saved is a woman. Totally off the grid in terms of what they were expecting. Sometimes we go to a place confident we know exactly how God is going to work everything out until we actually arrive in that place, and then we realize that the way we thought he was going to do it is totally different from what he's doing. He has something totally different in mind. But we also notice the manner in which she saved. It says that as Paul began to speak about Jesus, and what appears to be this really quiet discussion, the Lord moves and opens her heart to receive. See, God moves on the hearts of men and women to turn their hearts towards him. See, Paul saw a similar effect in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, where it reads in verse 48 of chapter 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believe, appointed, God opened their hearts. Jesus affirms this truth in John chapter 6, where it says, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or opens his heart. God builds his church by opening hearts. And God builds his church with these kinds of people, wealthy, stable, smart, and yet still in need of a quiet move of God to open their hearts that are closed towards him. This is what Lydia heard, and this is what drove Lydia to become the first member of Greater Philippi Missionary Baptist Church number two. And this is what you should be praying in—in—in in, in for the people in your life. You should be praying that every time you share the gospel with them, that God will open their heart to receive the message. See, some of our salvation stories actually relate to Lydia. We relate to this woman, maybe financially stable, maybe, maybe business savvy. Maybe we've heard a, a, a quiet gospel presentation and our hearts were open to receive Jesus. However, this isn't the only woman that makes up the Philippian church. In fact, the next person is the exact opposite of Lydia. When you look at verse 16, you hear about this young slave girl. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So Paul's missionary team, they go, they go along on the journey and they continue to, uh, they continue to go to the uh, place of prayer. And this, this girl is following them and, and agitating Paul. Paul. She's totally different from Lydia. Lydia is stable, business minded, wealthy. She's poor, demon possessed, a slave. One is helpful, insisting that the brothers come to her, to her home and and rest up, and the other one is helpless. Nothing to offer them in the way of means. This demon-possessed girl is probably one who had clairvoyant visions and predictions and and uttered words and all kinds of strange and mysterious voices. And that appears to be why the, the owners of this girl were using and exploiting her for gain by getting her to tell people's fortunes and that type of thing. See, don't miss that. Don't miss that that this young girl was being used by the devil and being used by men. We don't see much of this kind of exploitation in our, in our culture in this particular way, but the devil is using other methods for exploitation, and there are men lining up more than happy to take advantage of it. Perhaps it's sexual promiscuity due to the need of of, of feeling love. Perhaps it's a lack of self worth due to the lack of awareness that they are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. There was a recent podcast by by the journalist Katie Couric, where where she's speaking with this author of this new book on the on the harmful impacts of pornography on our society and on our children. She's talking about through study that what they've realized is that, that that this that this hypersexualized culture, this increasingly hypersexualized culture, is socializing our young ladies to just simply live to please. They're living on the whims and demands of young boys, whatever they ask. No matter how harmful. In other words, the culture is training them. To be just like this young slave Greek girl, exploited. What is God's answer to this? It's not to give into the culture of exploitation or bondage. It's to set free from the culture of exploitation and bondage. The answer is given, is to be given the kind of power that brings deliverance from the bondage that the culture calls freedom. The answer is Christ and the power that he brings to set free. Now, notice that the de- demonic girl is saying all the right things about these men, but she's saying the right things on the, under the wrong pretenses, and thus it's still wrong, no matter how right it sounds. You see, if they accepted her when she spoke about them rightly without denouncing her bondage and exploitation, then they would be attaching the work of Christ to the institution of exploitation. And we've seen this on plenty of occasions with men and preachers and, and, and who, who, who co-opt exploitation by saying stupid stuff like men will be men and boy will, boys will be boys. And in so doing, they're co-opting young daughters and being exploited. Christian men co-opting exploitation by reducing our sisters to be objectified. And we see the chickens coming home to roost with the, re- with the recent Church to movement. More and more women and sisters are standing, uh, stand, coming forth, and, and sharing their experiences of being exploited, just like this young Greek slave girl. They're sharing their experiences of men hiding behind a banner, of, a banner of Christianity and leadership and using it as a weapon to exploit and defile. So we must fight the urge to just simply ignore. look away. No, we must face exploitation directly and boldly to speak the words of Jesus with power. God builds his church with these kind of people too. Poor, bound, physically and spiritually, and in need of explosive demonstrations of God's power in order to be set free. So you have this wealthy, career-minded woman, and you got this poor slave girl who has just been set free from demon possession. And they're in the same church, which leads us to our last person. Beginning in verse 19, it says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. And they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So in verses 19 through 34, we read about Paul and Silas being thrown in jail because they literally mess up the economy of this community. There's owners that are capitalizing off of exploitation, and by them setting this young girl free, they mess with their money. And you know nobody enjoys anything more than you messing with their money. And so they throw them in jail. Here's a few words about the jailer. He's not wealthy or poor. He's probably just an average guy. Sits in the middle, probably. Socially, and systemically, and economically, probably sits right in the middle. Probably didn't benefit too significantly too significantly from the system, but probably isn't being hurt nearly as much as some people are by it. Religiously, we don't know his faith, doesn't appear to be demon-possessed like the young girl, but doesn't appear to be overly religious like, like Lydia either. Yet what do they all have in common? The young girl, Lydia, and this jailer, they are all in need of the same Savior. They are all in need of the same Jesus. And it's this Jesus that they meet. It's this Jesus that this jailer meets. When God shows his power in delivering Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners that are are locked up, the jailer says, whoever you worship, I want to know him. What must I do to meet him? And the jailer and all of his household is saved. So what do we take away from all of this? Number one, everyone needs saving. Everyone needs saving. Everybody needs saving. The well-off, the poor, the middle class, the, the benefiters of the system, the exploiters of the system, those enforcing the system, women, men, left-wing, right-wing, law-abiding, law-breaking, everybody needs saving. Each person in this chapter, they, they they land in a different location, socially, economically, politically, ethnically, gender-wise, and yet they all needed to come in contact with the resurrected Christ and his good news. And it is good news because of the second point, the second takeaway is that Jesus actually can save anybody. Galatians 3 tells us, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. He says, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Jesus can save anybody. But the third takeaway is that the church has to position itself like that's actually true. We must overcome the challenge of difference in order to take part in God's building of his church. We have to look past challenges and and look past the the challenge of difference in order to take part in God's building of his church. The church can't be a place that has picks and chooses as to who can walk through the doors. The church can't be a place that has picks and chooses that, as to who can be used by God. The church can't be a place as to, a, a, that has picks and chooses as to who I'm going to spend my time with and who I'm going to invest in and who I'm going to love on. The church must represent what Jesus does. The truth that he can save anybody. Pay special attention to verses 23 to 25. Notice again how God is building his church through empowering his people to press through challenge. Paul and his missionary team, they could have just called it quits at this very moment. Up, oh, We're in jail. All right. Show's over. But they decide to do what? They decide to push through the challenge of persecution. They rejoice, they sing, they push through, and God moves. See, in order to be effective missionaries, we must look past the challenges in life to see the people God has called us to reach for him and the glory he has called us to bring to him. See, this is how God builds his church through empowering us to push through with people from every walk of life, but we can't. We can't just push through, and we can't just see different people say we must preach the gospel. The common thread in all of this story from beginning to end is that every person that they, walked, that they came in contact with received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lydia, the rich businesswoman, received the gospel of Jesus Christ. The young poor slave girl received the gospel of Jesus Christ. The average Philippian prisoner or pri- uh, Philippian jailer received the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the story of the gospel is very similar to what we see in chapter 16 all throughout. Christ pushed past the challenge to bring salvation to a world in desperate need of him. He pushed past being wrapped in human flesh and taking on the form of a lowly servant. He pushed past being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He pushed past being betrayed by one of his own. He pushed past being denied by one of his own. He pushed past being unjustly punished by the government. He pushed past being hung on the cross for sinners who rejected him. He pushed past being buried in a borrowed tomb. And he pushed all the way through until he pushed past sin and pushed past death and pushed the stone away. He pressed through the challenge of the cross to save a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And now he stands there with his arms open wide, stretched wide, having pushed past all of the challenge to get to you. And he's calling on you. To submit your life to him and embrace him as truly Lord and truly Savior. To stop running, to stop, to stop running, to stop halfway giving him, to give give him your crumbs, but to but to but to truly submit to him as Lord and as Savior. This is the gospel that Paul and his team pressed through difficulty to deliver. This is the gospel that saved Lydia, the young slave and the jailer. This is the gospel that built that Philippian church. And saints, this is the gospel that will build this one.